By way of review, I want to tell you about a person I knew one time. We're talking about cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And her name was Carol. And uh, she was in this home. I, I used to work as a counselor for a home for emotionally disturbed teenagers, which maybe sounds redundant, but these kids were very emotionally disturbed. I'm sorry. Teenagers, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> it's like Bill Cosby says, all kids are, you know, born brain damaged. But... Um, these kids were really emotionally disturbed, and Carol had been raised uh, with a lot of abuse, vicious abuse. Her whole childhood was like this. And the result was that Carol was diagnosed as being a complete sociopath, having a sociopathic personality. And these are scary people because they don't have the ability, their entire emotional nervous system is shut down. It's been severed, and so they don't feel what other people feel. They can't enter into the feeling world uh, of, of other people. They can't empathize with people. She had no concept of other people's feelings. And she could be incredibly cruel. She's the kind of person which you might someday read about would kill somebody and feel no remorse or anything for it. She just, the world revolved around her and people were simply objects of manipulation to get to her own end. The real uncanny thing about Carol, though, was this. When it was to her advantage... She could come across as being the most loving and caring and considerate and compassionate person that you'd ever want to meet. When it was to her advantage, she could turn on that behavior and do it perfectly. I'd seen her shed tears before with other uh, girls in this home. If it was to her advantage, if there's something she wanted from them. In fact, she could do the behavior so perfectly precisely because she lacked any internal reality of that. She didn't know on the inside, like a colorblind person who doesn't understand the, the real meaning of red and blue and white, well, white I suppose, but not red and blue, they don't have a concept of, of what that is because they've never experienced it. Carol didn't have a real understanding of what genuine love and genuine compassion was. But for just that reason, she was a specialist on the behavior of it. The whole reality of what love was, of what compassion was, for Carol, was a set of behaviors. And since that was the, her whole understanding of what love and compassion was, she specialized on it. She studied it. She had it down perfectly. And when the situation called for it, she could turn it on. And when the situation didn't call for it, she could turn it off. Her lack of reality, the lack of experienced reality, led her to be more perfect than normal in terms of manifesting that kind of behavior. You following me? What's a little bit scary is that something very similar can happen when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And this has been an issue I've been concerned with throughout the whole development of this series. It is possible. In fact, I think it happens with some frequency. If the fruit of the Spirit, if the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness of the Spirit is understood primarily in behavioral terms, if it's understood primarily as something that you do, if it's understood primarily as something that you're supposed to crank out, and, and if what's important when we talk about the love and joy and peace of the Spirit is how things appear, what you do is you train people to focus on behavior. You train people how to be experts on pr producing Loving behavior and joyful behavior and peaceful behavior when the reality isn't there at all. And in fact, the ones who are best at producing that kind of behavior are very frequently the ones who experience it the least. Because the whole, their whole understanding, their whole world of what it means to have love, joy, and peace is understood in terms of their behavior. And so they're masters of it, and yet there's absolutely no 
reality behind it. Legalism, you might say, produces spiritual carols. It produces Christian sociopaths who have the external appearance of all that's healthy and good and right and just, and yet there's no internal reality to it. What we've seen in the, in the six, seven weeks of this study is this, that if you want to, if you want to bring about change in your life in the direction of being more Christ-like, if you want to bring about change in your life in terms of cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, don't pursue the change as an end in and of itself. Don't pursue the change. What we've seen is that we need to pursue the changer. Don't become obsessed with the behavior, how much of it you have and how much of it you don't have. Pursue and become obsessed with the one who can give us the reality of the fruit of the Spirit, which brings about, as a footnote, as a consequence, the fruitful behavior in our life. All change we've seen, all change comes about when we see the glory of the Lord and we are transformed into that glory. When we see His love, we become more loving. When we see His joy over us, amidst our sin, amidst the shortcomings, amidst the failings, when we see His delight over us, like we sang about this morning, and see His peace over us, then we begin to take on those characteristics and change is produced in our life. The most important thing we can do in terms of bringing about change is to spend time, invest time in our relationships with Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to make that real. Not just an abstract idea, but something that is real, something that's concrete, and therefore something that's transforming in our life. Well, this morning I want to talk about two other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. There's one fruit with many aspects we've seen. And the two that I want to talk about are kindness and gentleness. We're not going to get through all of them in this study. We're going to conclude this next week. But I want to talk about kindness and gentleness. And the words I'd use to get at the essence of what I think Paul's talking about with these two closely related aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, the words I'd use would be empathy and sympathy. Empathy and sympathy. Empathy literally means, M means going into, pathos means feeling. It means entering into the feelings of another. Entering into the feelings of another. And where that happens, you have kindness. Sympathy means suffering with or experiencing with. Sim and pathos together means experiencing with, coming down with a person, feeling what they feel. As Paul says, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And where that happens, you're going to find graciousness or kindness and gentleness. My first experience that I can recall, I was thinking last night, when did I first experience something that we call empathy? I think I pinpointed it. It was in seventh grade. And there was a... Junior high is brutal. Uh, it's, if you survive junior high, you should get an award. Uh, you're fit for anything in life because it's a cruel time. And one of the cruel things that was happening in my life was that there's this kid who had an incredibly bad acne problem. Really bad. I mean, this wasn't the normal acne problems that you have when you're 12 years old. This was a severe acne problem. And the kids used to get, during the breaks, get out in the hall and form a circle around him and sing this song about Pizza Face. We call him Pizza Face. And we make jokes about the new anchovy that he grew on his face. And kids, you know, they can have this really sadistic humor and, and, and we would just tear this kid apart. And I didn't do too much of it, but I didn't stop it. I just sort of went along with it and laughed along with it. And then came this one day. This was my, my first date, uh, my first dance I was going to in seventh grade with, you won't believe this, but with Kathy Nelson. And Kathy Nelson was the babe of the school. She was what every seventh grader dreamed of. This is like my wonder years. I'm talking to you about my wonder years here. 
I was nervous about going out with, with, with Kathy Nelson. She, I, we were going to get married, and as Christy Alley says on Cheers, we're going to get married, and she was going to have my babies, and we're going to live happily ever after. She didn't know any of this, but it was all planned in my mind. So I asked her on this date, and we were going to go out. And sure enough, Friday morning, I get up, and there in the middle of my forehead was a third eye, bigger than my other two. <laughs> Humongous! And I went through the standard things that you go through when you're 12 to try to, you know, get rid of that thing. You, you, you know, you put the hot, t- you know, you remember about those things. You put the hot steam on, you try to pop it, and, ah, and this thing wouldn't pop. And it was just, it got bigger and bigger the more I tried to play with it. And it was up here, so I couldn't do my standard trick of putting on a Band-Aid and saying I cut myself shaving three years before I started shaving. <laughs> yeah, I was shaving. I, I'm so hairy, I get hair on my forehead. Couldn't do that. And I remember looking in the mirror and being distraught about this whole thing, and then it occurred to me. What that kid must feel like every morning of his life. When he wakes up and he looks in the mirror, and he's not worried about the date he's going to have tonight, he doesn't get dates. He worries about surviving the day because of the abuse he's going to take. And that's what empathy is. My little seventh grade way, I felt something about what he felt. I was moved towards compassion, which also means to experience with. Moved with some sympathy, graciousness, kindness towards this kid that otherwise suffers a great deal of abuse. But you see, in our fallen condition, in the state of the world that we're in, in this warfare that we have declared against God, in our fallen condition, our natural inclination is not towards empathy. Our natural inclination is to define ourselves and define our world in terms of our own agendas. To create for ourselves a little oasis of, of peace and a little oasis of meaning and a little oasis of happiness. And to call it our own and, and to set up fences around that. And that's what our lives going to be about. We want a little modicum of meaning in our life and a little modicum of joy in our life. And that's what we're concerned with. That's what we're obsessed with. Getting our own needs met. That's life in the flesh that we've seen the last six, seven weeks. And other people's issues are not my issues i got issues of my own. And other people's problems are not my problems. i got problems of my own. Someone's suffering with depression. Well, you know, <laughs> that's the psychiatrist's problem or that's their mother's problem, but it's not my problem. I'm trying to create a little oasis of happiness. I don't have the resources or the inclination to go out of my way to enter into their depression. Someone is suffering from phobias, some, some kind of fear, suffering from rejection, some kind of emotional trauma in their life. But that's their problem. It's not my problem. It's their issue. It's not my issue. I'm busy trying to make a little bit of a, wa- a little oasis of happiness for me and my family and my wife and get by in life. I don't have the time, the resources, or the inclination to enter into their world, to see things from their perspective, to experience the world from their perspective. I got troubles of my own. People are hungry. People are homeless. It's somebody's problem, but it's not my problem. It's Clinton's problem. It's welfare's problems. It's society's problem, but it's not my problem. I got enough problems. I don't need to go out of my way to try to make someone else's issues my issues. That's our natural inclination in a fallen world. There's a religious version of this also. We think, oh, well, we're Christians. We're not that crass. We don't say it's not my problem. But there's a religious version of this. There is religious flesh. That's just as fleshly as the other kind of flesh, the secular flesh, but it takes on, it has religious terminologies. And, 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 and the way you can, as a, a, in a religious way, say it's not my problem is by saying it's sin. It's sin. When you attach the label of sin onto something, that means, well, then I don't need to do any further work. There's no need for further discussion, no need for further dialogue. I don't need to take the time to enter into this person's life. Their problem is sin. They need to get rid of that sin. They need to change their life. They need to repent. They need to get right with God. And then maybe I'll talk with them. But you attach the label of sin on it, and that sort of solves everything. Ah, oh, well, that's all there is to be said for it. 
She's a baby killer. She had an abortion. I don't need to take the time to enter into her life, try to see the world from her perspective, try to empathize with her suffering. Sin is sin. Spade is a spade. we got to call it for what it is. And I don't need to take the time to enter into her sin-stained worldview. He's a homosexual. No wonder he got AIDS. He had it coming. It was God's judgment upon his life. And I don't need to take the time to enter into his worldview to try to see things from his perspective, to try to understand the history and the total context. Sin is sin. Nothing, nothing more to talk about. He's an adulterer. She's a prostitute. My neighbor's a nag, and it can go on. And we attach the label of sin to the person, and that's supposed to get us off the hook. It's a one way of saying it's not my problem. This fleshly religious attitude basically says this. If you want to talk, we do it on my turf, not yours. If you want to have fellowship, well, you join me over here. I'm not going to go out of my way to join you over there. You come up to my level, but I'm not going to go down to your level. You clean yourself up. I'm not going to go rolling around in the dirt with you. You have to enter into my righteousness. I'm not going to enter into that worldview of yours, which is so sin-stained. If you want to embrace and fellowship, then you first got to take a bath. And we can call that righteousness, and we can call that holiness, and we can call that sanctification, but in truth, there's nothing holy, there's nothing sanctified, there's nothing righteous about it. If you consider the ministry of Jesus, you find that never did he... Never did he attach the label of sin onto a person as a way of dismissing them. He never dismissed people because of their sin situation. Rather, his entire life, his entire being, his entire ministry was about empathy, was about entering into the life of others. His entire ministry was about pouring himself out as a way of incarnating himself in the lives of others. The very fact that he became a man shows this. The Bible says that when he was in the form of God, Philippians chapter 2, when he was in the form of God, he didn't, he didn't grasp after equality with God, but the Bible says he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and he poured himself into humanity. That is what empathy is about. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. When we were yet at war with God, he came to us. When we were yet in sin and condemnation and degradation, he poured himself into our life. He dove headfirst into our muck and grime. He took upon himself on the cross all the sin, all the degradation, all the condemnation of the world. That's the essence of empathy. And throughout his ministry, he was doing the same thing. He didn't dismiss the prostitute because of her prostitution. He didn't dismiss the tax collector because of his thievery. And he didn't dismiss people because they were unimportant or because they were outcast or what have you. His ministry was about being moved. The Bible says this a number of times. He was moved with compassion towards them, entering into their life, seeing things from their perspective, the perspective down under. One example of this. In John chapter 4, you read about this. There was this woman at the well. Remember this story? Woman at the well. And Jesus uh, went there to get some water and met her and started up a conversation with her. Now, there was a number of things this woman had going against her. Number one, she was a woman. And uh, righteous rabbi Jews did not talk with women other than their wives in public. Number two, she was a Samaritan. And, and the Orthodox Jews regarded the Samaritans as being the scum of the earth. You don't talk to Samaritans. Number three, she was living with a man that wasn't her husband, which in the first century was pretty close to prostitution. And number four, she'd been married five times up to this point, which in the first century was absolutely unheard of. It's even kind of radical today. Now, if Jesus had been kind of a redneck, if he wanted to you know, shoot at the behavior, if he wanted to shoot at sin, if he wanted to apply the label of sin, there's a lot of areas he could have applied it at. 
But what really comes out in John chapter 4, what really hits you when you read John chapter 4 is this. The only thing Jesus was concerned with, the only thing Jesus wanted to talk about was this woman's thirst. He wanted to talk about this woman's need. He let her know that he knew her history. He knew her past. He entered into that. But that wasn't what was important to him. What he was interested in was seeing past the behavior, seeing past the history, seeing past the reputation, getting past the labels, and getting at the heart of this woman. And at the heart of this woman, there was a need, there was a thirst, there was a hunger for love, for salvation. And that's what Jesus wanted to talk about. So he treated her with respect. He treated her with dignity. He didn't undermine her, dismiss her because of her, her, her past. He made an evangelist out of her. He said, go into town and tell the people what's, what's taking place here. Jesus was about looking past the externals and getting to the heart. He never condoned sin. He never condoned it. That is cruel. To say, I'm okay, you're okay, kind of relativistic thing, that's a cruel thing, and Jesus never did that. But what came out of his life, the first thing was the hug. If there was cleaning up to do, and there was always cleaning up to do, and there still is always cleaning up to do, the cleaning up came after the hug. Jesus' approach was to say, to talk, we'll talk on your turf. I'll come down to your level. I'll immerse myself in your situation. I'm not afraid of getting my hands dirty. And whatever cleaning up there was to do, whatever deliverance there was to do, whatever repentance there was to do, and there was always a lot of it, came as a result of Jesus first taking the initiative to enter into their life. And there was never a perspective that was so low, a perspective that was so ugly, a perspective that was so grating that Jesus wasn't afraid to enter into it. And there was never a person that was so sinful, that was so lost, that was so far gone that Jesus was afraid of of entering into their life. What we need to understand is that the Spirit of Jesus Christ resides within us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ resides within us, and we are called to do what Jesus did. We're called to incarnate ourselves in the lives of other people empathetically, without condemnation, without judgment. We're not called first and foremost to be proclaimers of our own morality. We're not called first and foremost to give notice to all that we're around about what areas of their life and what areas of their lifestyle and what opinions they have that we disagree with. What we're called first and foremost to do is to show love and to show empathy by entering into their lives, by making their issues our issues to the degree that they're open to it, by making their problems our problems to the degree that they're open to it. Because far more important than the prostitute's prostitution is the need and the hunger that's driving her in that inner life. Far more important than the thief's stealing, and far more important than the greedy person's greed, and far more important than the adulterer's adultery, and far more important than the young woman's decision to have the abortion, is the need, the hunger, the want, the vacuum that's there in the center of her life. And what's needed more than anything else, if there's any hope of redeeming them, of saving them, and changing their life, it will be by showing in a concrete way the love of God by entering into their life in a non-judgmental, non-condemning way. You don't need to condone the young woman's decision to abort her pregnancy, but we do need to non-judgmentally and non-condemningly enter into their world to try to experience from the inside, if we're going to gain any credibility about saying anything, to gain on the inside something about the fear, something about the worry, something about the guilt that that person carries in their life. And you don't need to condone the homosexuality of the homosexual, but we do need to enter into their world as much as we can with the help of God and see the world from their perspective in a non-condemning, non-judgmental way, show love and begin to bring about change on the inside. 
And it's even true for less momentous things with our spouse, with our kids, and with each other. The first and foremost thing that we need to do if we're moved by the Spirit of God is to have an openness that's willing without judgment to enter into each other's lives. That's empathy. And where we do that, you'll find kindness. Where we do that, you'll find graciousness. Where we fail to do that, we'll find unkindness and a lack of graciousness. So how do we bring this about? How do we we go about becoming more empathetic people, more compassionate people? We're probably not, we don't go out of our way to be cruel. We're probably not cruel people. But we do lack this more in terms of what we don't do than in terms of what we do do. The, 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 the opportunities for love that we don't see, the opportunities for ministry that we don't see, the people in need around us, in this very congregation here this morning, who feel utterly, utterly alone in what they carry. They're around us. But if you don't have the eyes that look for it, and if you're defining your life in terms of your oasis, we don't notice those kind of things. And we still pat ourselves on the back for not being cruel, but the kindness that is the fruit of the Spirit is much broader than that, much more profound than that. How do we go about beginning to have eyes of ministry? How do we go about beginning to develop the eyes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, which sees the aloneness of people and begins to make themselves available to enter into their lives? It won't come, as we've seen with every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't come by trying hard to crank it out. It won't come by trying to manufacture it. It won't come by your self-effort. It comes only by the working of the Spirit of God in our life, as we've seen. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus in our life, Christ-likeness begins to come about. Two things the Spirit of God does in our life that brings us about. I should have brought a handkerchief. I'm not going to baptize the... uh, (laughs) Sorry about that. That's not how we baptize, by the way, but I... That is hot. Let it sweat. Come on, let it pour. I love it. This is good for you. How do we go about opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit to move in our life? Two things I want to say, and I close with this. The first thing, as we've seen with every, every area of the, of the fruit of the Spirit, change comes about as we begin to see that attribute in Jesus. What is His by nature is given to us by grace. The more clearly we see it, the more clearly we experience it. The primary job of the Holy Spirit in our life is to point us to the reality of Jesus Christ and to begin to develop a vibrant, real, dynamic relationship there. Not one that's theoretical, cognitive, simply a matter of the head, but one that is experiential, one that makes a difference and is transforming and is concrete in our life. When we're talking about empathy, the most fundamental thing the Holy Spirit can do in our life to begin to bring about empathy in our life is to show us the way that Jesus empathizes with us. When we see what, what, what uh, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, we read the passage this morning, that our high priest isn't a high priest that can't be touched with our infirmities. He's not a God who's so far up there, who's so important and so big that he doesn't have time for us. But rather, our high priest is one who in every respect was made like we are and suffered what we suffered. When we see that Jesus Christ therefore understands us, and that's not just a thing in the head but a thing in the heart, we become more like that. 
One of the most profound things that ever happened to me in terms of my growing relationship with the Lord is when I saw, when the Holy Spirit in a time of private uh, devotion with the Lord showed me that Jesus cries. Showed me that Jesus cries. That he feels pain. Because I think I always thought that God was above that. One of my most fundamental difficulties, the, 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 the strongest root of deception in my own life that I wrestle with is this, is this conviction that God is somehow too big and too great and too holy to be concerned with sinful little people like me. And sometimes that makes me kind of get resentful because I ask God when things go wrong, when people suffer and tragedy occurs, I ask God, where are you and why don't you do something? Why aren't you down here being a part of this whole thing? And my head knows that he is, but my heart is still under some deception, a lie, a false picture about God. And what I need to see sometimes is that Jesus Christ, however much I might feel about my own issues or about other people's issues, Jesus feels it infinitely more. And he's not above crying. He's not above pain. And I need to hear sometimes, and, and, and I think we all do, him say, what you go through, I go through. Paul says we suffer with Christ. He's there with us. One of the most painful dimensions of all forms of, of, of uh, suffering, whether it's emotional or physical, is the feeling that you're alone. The feeling that no one quite understands what you're going through. The feeling that this is the burden you, care, uh, you carry on your own. And what we need to see and allow the Holy Spirit to make real to us in times with the Lord is the truth that St. Augustine said. St. Augustine said, the Lord is, listen to this, this is profound. The Lord is closer to you than you are to yourself. That's how close he is. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. It may in fact be that, that there's no other resource, no other human resource for you to, de to, to depend on, to lean on. It may be that there's no one who understands you. Maybe everyone even misunderstands you. Maybe the rest of the church even misunderstands you. Maybe what you're getting is nothing but judgment and condemnation. And no one is on the inside of, 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 of your experience. No one is on the inside of your going through the divorce. No one's on the inside of you being a single parent. No one's on the inside of the guilt that you carry around because of the petty sins in your life. But there is one who is on the inside of that, if you let him on the inside of it, if you allow the Holy Spirit to show you that it's a real thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And as you see Jesus come to you, and as you see Jesus empathize with you, as he becomes a fellow sufferer with you, as you see Jesus weep when you weep and rejoice when you rejoice, you become healed, you become whole, you become as God created you to be. And as, as an outgrowth of that, as a footnote to that, you become a more empathetic person. Sometimes we, in times with the Lord, I find myself sometimes wanting to push Him away. As I see the Lord and I, I, I picture Him coming to me and embracing me, which is such a healthy, beautiful thing for Him to do, there's a part of me that wants to say, Lord, don't do this. Like Peter said and like Isaiah said when He, when he came in the presence of God, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. And I got these filthy rags. I got these filthy clothes. And, and if you wrap your arms around me, you're going to get all muddy. You're going to get all dirty. You're going to get that manure all over you. Don't do it. There's a shame that is there. And we want to push the Lord away. And maybe we want to try to clean ourselves up and present our best foot, our best image before Him. But what needs to happen is for us, go ahead and say that out loud, for us in the midst of all that we have, in the midst of all of our lack of the fruit, to let Jesus be Jesus to us. Let him embrace us in the midst of that. Let him enter into the darkest resources of our heart. Let him put his arms around you when you feel like you just can't bear it. 
Because that's what begins to bring healing in our life. It also has this effect. The greatest, one of the, 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 the greatest obstacles to being empathetic is having, a, a, having a, a feeling of moral superiority. People who feel morally superior to others can't possibly be empathetic with them. It blocks it. It's that condemnation. It's that religious flesh we talked about before. But when you understand, as the Spirit of Truth reveals this truth to you, that you are loved, you're infinitely loved, you're embraced, you're redeemed, you're forgiven in spite of your sin. And all you are before God is a matter of grace. And all you'll ever be is a forgiven sinner. When you see that, not to condemn yourself, but to rejoice in the goodness of the Lord, when you see that, you can't possibly walk around with an attitude of moral superiority. When I see all the obstacles that God overcomes in order to embrace me, when I see all the obstacles that God overcomes to enter into my life, how can I possibly have any obstacles between me and another person? I know that my sin set me apart from God as, as much as their sin set them apart from God. And maybe my issues are different issues, but sin is sin. And when I see that I am forgiven and redeemed in spite of myself, how can I possibly have this kind of judgmentalism towards others? that would keep me from entering into an empathetic, non-condemning, non-judgmental way, entering into their life and making their issues my issues. The Holy Spirit does that, and as such, He brings out the fruit of empathy in our life. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is this. The Holy Spirit can, if we are open to Him, if we, are, if we yield ourselves to Him, the Holy Spirit can take the world of others, the feeling world of others, the perspective of others, and give us a slice of it. I, I, it's hard to describe what I'm talking about. Let me just give you an example of it. Several weeks ago, there's a young lady who came forward, and I prayed with her. And she had marriage problems. And that's a pretty common thing that we pray for up here at the altar at the end of services. It's a pretty common thing in, in, in the world today, and so we end up ministering to that. But as I, I held this young lady's hands, and I began to pray for her. And I began to feel like a scared wife. I, I begin to feel something of her fear that her husband's going to leave. I begin to feel something of her, of her fear that she'd end up a single mother of three. I begin to feel something of, of her confusion. I begin to feel something of her rage towards her husband. I begin to feel what she was going through. That was the Holy Spirit. I think it goes under the category of what the Bible calls a word of knowledge. The Lord can supernaturally impart to us. If we're open to it, if we don't censor it out of our mind as being something that's unordinary, but we're open to it, the Lord can give us a slice of someone else's experience. Try this in prayer sometime. Pray for somebody and ask the Lord to give you something of their perspective because that's what moves you towards compassion. That's what moves you towards empathy. This is why it's so great to pray for your enemies. The Bible tells us to pray for those who persecute us. Pray for your enemies. Because in praying for them, the Lord can give us something of their perspective. They don't remain your enemies for very long because God lets you on the inside of their life. It happens in prayer if we're open to it. It can happen at other times as well. Sometimes I've been up here speaking, and all of a sudden, I, and I've even told you about it, I, I all of a sudden feel like I get something. God, God takes something that's out there and, and lets me know about it, and I feel it, and then says, minister to it. It can happen while you're, you're walking down the hallway of your workplace, where you see a person, and all of a sudden, you maybe feel a heaviness. You just, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever experienced this? Yeah. You feel a heaviness. Or, or, or you just sense, some radar's going off, and you sense that there's something there. 
And normally in our ordinary operation of life, we just say, oh, that's just me, or oh, that's just the pizza I ate, or I didn't get enough sleep last night, or it's my mother-in-law talking in my head, or something like that. We just dismiss it. I want to encourage you to begin to operate on the spontaneity of this spirit because the Lord can take their issues and give it to you. So you begin to feel something what Jesus feels towards them and that moves you towards compassion. It moves you towards ministry. You get to see the world, feel the world a little bit from their perspective. And our first word then isn't condemnation. It's graciousness and we, and we enter into it. But it will never happen unless we're open to it. Unless we're yielded to that. The Holy Spirit wants to raise up a people who know how to enter into the world, to incarnate themselves, as it were, in the lives, the issues, the hurts, the pains of the world around us. That's the primary thing that evangelism is all about. And entering in there, show the love of God and begin to redeem them. Can we stand? I want to invite you, I want to invite you, uh, if you have any area of need in your life, that you would like to join with somebody in prayer, or even if you'd just like to pray on your own, we always leave the altars open here. Please feel free to come forward. There will be some uh, altar workers up here that would like to pray with you. If, you. if you want someone to empathize with you and join with you on an issue, please feel free to come forward. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to do what we can never do on our own. You've called us to a ministry that we can't possibly carry it out on our own, Lord. You've called us to be kingdom workers, and that's utterly beyond our ability or anything we could do on our own, Lord. 